Hello and welcome to another BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Asta Sharma and I'm a trainee editor for BJ Psych Advances. Today we're recording live at the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Congress 2019 in London and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Norman Poole who's going to talk about his recent BJ Psych Advances article titled Functional Cognitive Disorders Identification and Management. Uh, Norman is a consultant neuropsychiatrist at St George's Hospital in South London and is also the editor for BJ Psych Bulletin. His special interests are functional cognitive disorders, neuropsychiatry of movement disorders and psychopathology in general. Thank you so much for joining us today Norman. Pleasure. So just to begin with could you share with our listeners what exactly are functional cognitive disorders and how common are they in clinical practice? Sure. So functional cognitive disorders really encapsulates a spectrum of cognitive difficulties, normally to do with memory, often to do with concentration, but they can be to do with other cognitive domains as well. So for instance, I've met people who've um, got a functional cognitive problem, which is much more visual, perceptual difficulty, recognising people who are familiar to them or or language difficulties, particularly sort of word finding difficulties, tip of the tongue type phenomena. You know, I, I, I know what the word is, but I just can't quite get it out. As I say, it encapsulates a range of conditions which were probably sort of not necessarily all that connected in the past. The archetypal functional cognitive problem really is dissociative amnesia and dissociative fugue. Now that's the condition whereby there's a complete loss of personal identity and dense amnesia for personal facts and episodic memory. And that's really what most people think of when they think of a functional cognitive Mm -hmm. problem. Um, There's no organic underlying neuropathological driver for the condition tends to be thought of as psychologically driven and motivated. Some form of psychological trauma has has precipitated it. However, those functional cognitive problems, those um, dissociative amnesias, are actually really quite rare. So whilst it's a a very dramatic picture Mm. and it has captured people's imagination, it's not really the most common functional cognitive problem that you'll come across. I think another um, commonly thought of functional cognitive problem is pseudo-dementia. So typically depressive pseudo-dementia, though actually it can also be an anxious pseudo-dementia or even a manic pseudo-dementia, whereby generally in older people there's a profound depression and that has led to lots of cognitive problems and it looks like it's a mimic of dementia. Again, not hugely common in clinical practice, Mm. but it's the ones that we most commonly think of. So... What we've done in this paper is borrow a way of putting these disorders together, which was first uh, suggested by Alan Carson and John Stone in Edinburgh. Um, They're real experts on functional neurological disorders broadly um, and have have written some some really useful papers on on all these conditions. So what they've done is think about the functional cognitive symptoms that occur in things like chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. in conversion disorder, in fibromyalgia, and, and actually people have tended to ignore the cognitive aspects. And so in mm-hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. you try and get the person's energy back, but actually they're often complaining of quite significant mm-hmm. cognitive problems. So they've put to, they've sort of suggested this nosology, which I've copied yeah. in this paper and perhaps gone into a bit more detail on in each of the categories. 
And the way they think of it, and I think the way we should think of it, is that these are a sort of spectrum of conditions rather than discrete entities in their own right. Some people would say that you can get a sort of pure functional cognitive problem or a cognitive disorder, which is like a functional neurological disorder, like a paralysis, but it's just affecting the memory. Whereas other people would say, well, actually, there's no one clear, distinct pattern. Um, It's just you've got a bit more of this and a bit more of that. So someone might worry a bit more about dementia. Someone might have a bit more of a sort of dense amnesia. Um, So it's, it's not... They're not to be thought of as discrete categories, really. But it's helpful to put them all together, to put it on the map, really, as um, as a more common problem than has previously been supposed. Yeah. And, yeah, one of the things that I really enjoyed reading in the paper was the categories. And certainly for me, it gave me a clarity of thought in terms of how to think about these disorders. Could you talk to us a little bit about those proposed categories you were mentioning? Sure, yeah. So um, there's six proposed categories. So the first one is memory symptoms in the context of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So we know that memory symptoms are common in these conditions, but actually sometimes memory problems are the most um, commonly complained of thing. And I suppose what would fit into this is the sort of the pseudo dementias. And then you've got um, normal memory lapses that can become a focus of concern. So we all have got poor memory and memory problems and these become more common as you get a bit older. Um, And I think people have started to focus more and more on that. If you listen Mm. to Radio 4, they're always talking about dementia and memory problems. Um, And so people are becoming increasingly concerned about just fairly minor slips in their memory. And in fact, probably we live in a more cognitively demanding world where memory slips are more obvious and more apparent you know work is more intellectually demanding perhaps than it used to be in the past you know if you're a coal miner it probably didn't really matter if you forgot some things whereas actually if you're working as an administrator in an office then those kind of slips do become much more obvious and apparent concerning so the third category we speak of is the isolated memory complaints without anxiety or depression now that's more than just the normal memory lapses that um, that I mentioned earlier, and these are quite sort of significant memory problems which the patient themselves um, wants some help with, and they will mm. generally go to their GP. And often these patients are referred to onto memory clinics for for full evaluation. Interestingly. Often when I've met these patients, they, they, they are very resistant to the idea that they've got any anxiety or depression and say, I've been told this is pseudo-dementia and I've been told that I'm depressed, but I'm not. And actually, I think if you engage with the patients and don't sort of force that issue too much, often later on they will admit to more anxiety and start to understand and appreciate their anxiety a, a bit more than they, mm. than they appreciated beforehand. Um, when Herman Berrios looked at his patients in the memory clinic, he, he d- called this uh, covert over-controlled anxiety and sort of had a particular okay. group of patients who, mm. who, who he described like that. And yeah, so I think it's the, the trick is not to get into a sort of confrontation with I can explain it all by anxiety and actually generally the patients will begin to admit a bit more to you later on. You've then got hypochondriacal disorder with dementia as the focus. I don't think you see that all that often. I've certainly seen Mm -hmm. it a few times where the patient is utterly convinced that it's dementia that they have. Mm -hmm. So this goes beyond 
just the sort of the memory complaints and talking about the memory complaints, mm-hmm. they are focused on having dementia. They say the neuroimaging, if you have done some and it's negative, they say it's just not sensitive enough and in time, you know, there'll be scans that reveal mm. the damage in my brain. If you do neuropsychological testing, they'll say that the tests weren't demanding enough and, and mm. there is dementia there, doctor, you've just not diagnosed it yet. Mm. Uh, so that's an interesting one because generally actually dementia and cognitive problems aren't in the Diagnostic, you know, it's not in the criteria for a diagnosis of hypochondriasis yeah, or hypochondriacal disorder. Yeah. So that probably does need to change, mm. actually. You've then got, as I mentioned earlier, memory symptoms in the context of a different functional disorder. So whether that's functional neurological disorders like mm. conversion disorder, hysteria in the old terms, or chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, these patients complain significantly of memory problems, but in the past we've just not really listened to them. One of the successful treatments for chronic fatigue syndrome is graded exercise therapy and CBT. And I spoke to Peter White, who ran the PACE trial mm. about this, and he said, actually, the cognitive symptoms didn't seem to improve, um, even though the energy levels did. So it's, it's, it's an interesting um, problem there. And then category six is the retrograde dissociative psychogenic amnesia. So the sort of the Mike Kopelman type, you know, yeah. dense amnestic mm. gap. Very interesting also very rare mm. really and and i mean we probably see one or two a year in a tertiary regional neuropsychiatry center so you know it's it's not common and yet actually that is the one that has a separate nosological category in icd isn't it that's the easiest one to diagnose yes yeah apparently <laughs> but yeah so just takes me to my next question of where would these diagnoses be placed in current nosology if at all there is a place for them they're not well placed in the ICD-10 or DSM-5. Um, ICD-11 talks about uh, functional neurological disorders and they are more specific that you can have cognitive symptoms in, in the, that context. So I think ICD-11 will be an improvement on ICD-10. So as a clinician, if I was encountering any of these cases, what are the key pointers in the assessment that can aid a diagnosis? Well, quite a bit of interesting work has been done on this, Mm -hmm. and actually just the clinical encounter itself is very suggestive of this being a functional cognitive disorder. So, for instance, is the patient presenting alone or have they brought a relative with them? If they're on their own, there's a very high positive predictive value that this is a a functional cognitive problem rather than a dementia. During the interview, if there is somebody there with them, um, patients with dementia will often defer and look um, look to the person who's with them, whereas these patients will often complain at length and quite bitterly about particular memory lapses mm. so they'll say last Tuesday whilst I was driving to B&Q I parked in such and such a place and then you know they, they, yeah. they give quite elaborate stories mm. about where their memory has let mm. them down whereas actually if you talk to a patient with dementia even when they have insight into the memory problems they don't give very sort of articulate uh, examples of the memory lapses mm. so it's the there's a sort of internal inconsistency between mm. what they report and, uh, and, and, and how they're reporting it really There's also an inconsistency between objective tests and the subjective performance. So if you do a bedside test like the Addenbrooks, often the patients will score quite well, 100%, 98%, but they will then say that subjectively they felt that they had done terribly badly 
um, or that the test was way too easy and not demanding enough. Whereas you wouldn't find that with a dementia patient. They would not be saying that the, the test was not demanding enough. So I think those are the key differences. Mm. And, and actually, you can generally make the diagnosis before any investigations. Mm. So you don't need to go down the route of doing neuroimaging to disprove, that the, you know, to, to show that the person doesn't have any neuropathology. One can do that in certain situations if, if, if you need to for, for whatever reason. So it's not a diagnosis of exclusion. You don't prove that the person doesn't have dementia, therefore they must have this. There are signs that you're looking for that indicate that that's, this is what just the disorder is. That's very helpful to know. I was curious, are there any known rating scales or structured assessment tools that one could use in such cases? So in research, what people tend to use is rating scales that measure subjective memory performance. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have a test that um, evaluates how often people had memory lapses, how effective they think that their memory is. At UCLH, um, Rob Howard and colleagues are designing and we're going to be doing some trials of a computer program that measures the effectiveness of the memory. And so you'll do memory tasks Mm. and then ask the person to say how Mm. good they are at the memory task. Um, And then you can report back the discrepancy between performance and sort of subjective evaluation in the hope that that might sort of do something for these patients. So there's no rating scale that makes the diagnosis Mm. it is a clinical diagnosis that you've got to make on clinical grounds but for research purposes and to monitor outcomes you can use some of these rating scales for subjective memory efficiency okay and once you've made the diagnosis what are the treatment options that have shown to be useful and are there any studies on the prognosis have there been follow-up studies to see how things go Well, the follow-up studies tend to have shown that these patients continue to complain of memory problems Mm. uh, well into the future. So it is a significant problem. Um, I think you asked at the beginning how how big a problem is it. Well, Mm. we don't really know exactly how big a problem it is. What we do know is that in many of the patients who are going to memory clinics now, are presenting with these functional cognitive problems. And in fact, over the past sort of five or six years, whilst the number of people going to memory clinics has increased, the number of diagnoses of dementia they're giving have stayed the same. Therefore, it seems that it's actually being, the, the, the clinics are being swelled by these patients with subjective memory problems. So it is important that we work out what to do with mm-hmm. these patients um, and try to offer some sort of treatment and intervention. What we do, however, is not clear. There's not an awful lot of evidence out there at the moment. Um, Rohan Brom at the UCLH has recently done a very useful systematic review and meta-analysis of of interventions. And it seems to show that memory training, which is Mm. what most patients in my experience want, they want you to sort of tell them how to build a memory palace and you know how to improve the memory that way. Yeah. Those things have not been shown to be effective. You, you might improve somebody's ability to remember a list of random mm. words, but it doesn't generalize into their life um, and it doesn't make their subjective memory performance any better. So the psychological treatments that have been shown to be effective seem to change expectancy about memory. So what you're doing there is teaching patients about normal memory functioning, normal 
forgetfulness and what, why we forget and how we forget and the rates of forgetting. Um, so often I'll in clinic talk to patients and just give them examples of how frequently people forget things like mm. there are various lists of these. So college students, completely normal, about mm. 25% of them will forget where they parked a car. You know, yeah. um, people will forget PIN numbers, but a third of people forget their PIN number when they're at the machine. Um, many, many people will forget people's names. Um, but someone gave me a, an example last night where they said that, um, that they were introducing their best friend to somebody and they forgot their best friend's name. So you either worry about this mm. or you just say, oh, isn't memory a funny old thing and get mm. on with life. Um, so some of it's about changing the expectancy. What we've been doing in our group, because we've set up uh, some groups for patients with these problems, is look at primary and secondary suffering. So taking the model from chronic pain. And so in chronic pain, they say, well, the pain is the primary suffering. You've been through every single treatment. You've tried every single medication. You've had nerve blocking. You've had this, you've had that. It's not worked. But what has the pain stopped you from doing in your life that you actually enjoy doing? How has it affected your life? Mm. Um, how do we sort of rebuild that? And so, so we're, we've been looking at secondary suffering and trying to lessen the secondary suffering. And what we've found, we haven't published it yet, but we're planning to, is that patients' subjective memory doesn't actually change. It doesn't particularly get any better. But what they do is their quality of life does improve and they mm. get to move on from it. And there's quite often some sort of eureka moments where people suddenly realise, oh, actually, I'm the memory for my entire family. I'm supposed to remember my daughter's diary, my husband's diary, my son's diary. And everyone asks me to remember these things. And yeah. tell you what, they can remember the, yeah. that from now on. So, so you, you do quite often get these kind of eureka type moments. Mm. Um, what we have found is that if you have patients with depression in those groups and so the memory problems much more related to depression, they're not having the same sort of response. So it, it is important that you try and, I know I said earlier, mm. they're all sort of, it's overlapping and it's a spectrum, yeah. but, uh, but if it's primarily to do with depression, you probably want to aim the treatment primarily at that in the first instance. Mm. Though I know cognitive symptoms mm. don't necessarily improve with, mm. with, the, with the medications and treatments there. In terms of medications, I don't think that anything has really been shown to be effective. Sometimes patients want to try something like a stimulant like modafinil, which yeah. I've tried off-label for you know short, defined periods of time with the patient's consent. Yeah. I've tried things like vortioxetine antidepressants, which are supposedly have a specific effect on cognition. I don't think that any of these have been effective in this group of patients, so I, I don't go too down the line of um, trying pharmacotherapy. Um, obviously, if there was something, then that would be great, but, but there isn't. So we, we are taking a much more psychological and group-based approach to treatment. And in terms of psychoeducation, if um, we had to explain these difficulties to someone walking up to a memory clinic, how should one go about it, explaining the diagnosis to patient and caregivers? What's worked in your experience? So I think the neurologists have very usefully learned about uh, from functional neurological disorder how to uh, make a diagnosis and, and what now, now to avoid. In the past, mm. people used to say, oh, that, it's great, all the tests are negative and there's nothing the matter with you, which of course was not the case in the person. So it, 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 the, the discrepancy there between your description and their experience actually just created a lot of anger and frustration. So what happens now is that 
the neurologists and ourselves with these patients will we'll take a very positive view to the diagnosis. We'll say, actually, we have made this diagnosis. We've done it on this criteria. These are the signs that point to this being mm. the diagnosis. So we say that the problem is common. Uh, many, many people are suffering with functional neurological disorders, functional cognitive problems. Um, so we will often give them you know, a research paper like I we'd provide them now with a copy of the advances paper um, as, a, as a psychoeducational instrument. We would point them to websites like mm. neurosymptoms.org where patients can read about their symptoms. Um, and, and quite often I've had people come back and say, I was reading about myself. It's incredible. It's the first time wow. anyone's ever okay. you know, described mm. exactly what is the matter. So people find that actually a very positive experience, you know, that, that they no, no longer feel so alone. We run a workshop for patients with all sorts of functional neurological disorder where there's a neurologist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a physiotherapist and a patient representative all describing and talking about these problems um, giving the model of you know what we think is going on what we know and also we're honest about the gaps in the knowledge and you know we don't exactly understand the mechanisms mm. how which these things come about but we have some idea and so we, we we tell them that and illustrate with an example well actually we don't know exactly why people get a stroke on the 5th of March 2000 and 19 yeah, yeah. at 3 a.m. You know, we can't explain that exactly. Yeah. So so we draw parallels there with other mm-hmm. physical health conditions. So we explain that we do not think that they're making the symptom up, that it's mm-hmm. not malingered. Um, and if there is depression and anxiety there, it's not accounting for the whole problem, but it's there and does need to be accepted and understood and, and treated in its own right. Thank you so much for your enlightening description about functional cognitive disorders. I certainly have learned a lot today. That concludes today's podcast. Thanks again for joining me, Norman. Okay, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.